I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Today's guest has a very, I would say, long-term, unique background who's been involved in healthcare IT and its industry from about every angle that you can imagine. So it should be a really great conversation. And one of the things we're going to kind of focus on today is all of the new thought, innovation, not so much innovation, as it, as it pertains to voice recognition and dictation and how physicians actually do their work. And I was thinking, when I was getting ready for this in my lifetime, I bet I have dictated over a hundred thousand notes in various forms, shapes, and sizes. I also realized, much to my pocketbook's chagrin, that I have purchased just about every voice recognition software version that has been created and upgraded it and all that stuff. And you know, with each successive purchase of a new system, they got a little better, they got a little bit more accurate, but they never really got completely accurate. And I'm talking about things that even up until today. Um, so it was, it was interesting to see that go through all of its gyrations. And if you go back to the old days of Dictaphone, they were one of the first people that came out with a voice recognition adjunct to having a transcriptionist actually type notes. Um, so it was interesting to see how that worked and it worked very well because my transcriptionist could re read my mind. So it really wasn't a problem with the recognition, but I will tell you a very interesting thing that just happened just yesterday. A lot of us in our homes have these things called Alexa and Alexa is listening all the time. And it's trying to, I'm trying to protect your privacy. So I record audio only after your device detects the wake word or if the action button is pushed. On Echo devices, you'll always know when your request is being sent to the cloud and Did everybody hear that? She's listening all- play that. King Von and 21 Savage on Amazon Music. <laughs> there is my point exactly. So our dog, our puppy's name is Zebulon. And I was talking with my wife about Zebulon and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, came music by Led Zeppelin. She recognized Zebulon as Led Zeppelin and started off, just like she just started off sitting on my desk. So it's interesting to see how that all has transpired and, and gone through various iterations and improvements, and sometimes not so much improvements, and how it's really starting to have the idea today. It's just basically going to be the panacea to everything that is causing physician burnout, physician doc documentation issues, and just everything to get us from not using an EMR to just talking and everything like magically happens in the background. So to that end, I'd like to introduce our today's guest. It's Dr. Nick Vander Hayden. Uh, he has his own podcast called The Incrementalist, uh, which I'll plug again in the middle of, of the show. Uh, but he's been a physician leader and business strategist who has been in, in this industry for a very long time. Uh, he's been a thought leader, a health IT influencer, 
Um, he's been featured in the top five of the Digital Health Power List 100, a leading healthcare tech and AI influencer to follow. Nick is very much dedicated to improving physicians' lives, their critical roles, and how they do their work, and how we can improve how they do their work. Um, he's one of the industry's most trusted advisors on executing groundbreaking breaking technology solutions, which we've talked about those several iterations. He has been involved with that. He is nationally recognized as a leader in virtual care delivery, digital health strategy. He currently works for the consulting firm ECG. Uh, he's also served as chief medical officer for Dell's global healthcare practice. He managed international corporate relations for Dell's global healthcare customers, uh, as well as being involved, involved with Nuance and Philips, both very large names in the voice uh, recognition and dictations uh, realm. Um, he's also worked with uh, clients supporting their revenue cycle management and particular expertise in building innovative real-time automation tools to augment programs. Um, I'm very pleased and privileged to um, have Nick on the program today. Welcome. Thanks, Jay. It's a great pleasure to uh, join you on the show and to be on the other side of the table. Let's kick off a little bit about how did you get to where you are today? What was your pathway to today and what you're doing? You, you know, interesting uh, opening question from my perspective, in part because of your introduction to me, and I think it bears relevance because you talked about that passion for um, making lives easier for clinicians. And I always try and put myself in the clinician's shoes. Um, and I was always, uh, you know, quite open and honest about it. It wasn't entirely altruistic. I was looking at it, you know, as a physician. I wanted my life to be better. Um, and I wanted to expand that. In fact, that's gotten doubly so um, because my daughter graduated just recently. She's going into medicine following my uh, career path. And I feel even more strongly about it in part because I think we've done a relatively poor job at making physicians' lives easier or better. We've, we've done okay. And we've had some, I guess, highlights or some good points. But an awful lot of the time, the technology that we introduced didn't really help. It, it hindered. It took physicians away from their primary desires, goals, and intent in the healthcare system, which is face-to-face -face time with patients. And that's been a real struggle for me. And I was certainly complicit in that um, in the very early days of the electronic medical record. When we implemented it, what did we do? We took the paper record and said, oh, let's create a digital version. Well, that really wasn't the smartest move on the uh, planet. And I think we've been paying for that ever since. And I'm trying to pay my tithes to uh, rectify some of my contribution to that mistake. So the state of the art, right, or the state of NLP dictation, voice recognition, you've, you have seen almost every iteration as I have seen uh, in this. Where do you think we are right now when it comes to um, what the computer can actually help us do without interacting with it, which I will talk about in just a moment, because I think that's one of the motivations of what we're, we're looking at today. But uh, the industry's come a long way. You've been part of it. Where do you think we are right now? Well, you, you talked a little bit about the history, and I, you know, I, I, I'm certainly 
part of that innovation through the course of time. And I think uh, many of the folks in my industry would thank you for buying all of the versions that we produced each and every time. It was uh, part of that annuity that helped for that innovation. If you go back, speech has been around from the 50s or so in, in some form, but mostly it was, uh, you know, individual words were really the primary um, methodology. So you would have to separate out speech. The biggest jump came when we moved to continuous speech recognition. And that was around 93, 94. At the time, the technology wasn't sufficient to cope. And we really had to throw an awful lot of processing power at it to actually deliver any kind of utility. And it was custom. It had to be for J. It had to be for Nick. You spent a lot of time creating profiles. What time and effort has done is we've automated most of that process. We've fast-tracked the opportunity to get to um, uh, accurate level of recognition. As you demonstrated so aptly, uh, and I was able to hit the uh, mute button faster than you because you, you alerted my same tool set that is in my office that was going off as well. Um, we've done a really good job, and it's become essentially a pervasive technology. And I'm proud to have been part of that because I think it's the simplifier for many clinicians. And critical to that, you, you captured one of the, the key elements in this, which is accuracy. Everybody focused on accurate. how accurate was your engine? And really that's not the question. You, you teased um, the, the really important question, which is how much intelligence does the engine have? So how much of the medical transcriptionist interpretation of my disjointed content uh, is the engine able to take and produce this grammatically correct, perfectly formatted document? And again, in the early days, relatively poor. What we saw, I think particularly with eScription, they were one of the first to really drive to this, which was stop focusing on uh, you know, one-to-one -one accuracy of what the physician said and what they actually meant, which was oftentimes quite different, and produce what they wanted. And that was really the big change. And that was driven by the NLP. That's the essentially the AI of the past. It's really, you know, very similar um, uh, innovation and technology that uses data to infer what you said and then predict what you're going to say into the future and then match that based on the um, the, the words that they hear. So we've seen huge progress, and I would say it's all pervasive. You, you, I think, demonstrated that perfectly for your audience. Well, you know, interestingly, there is a thought out there that we can hang a microphone in an exam room, and then all of a sudden magic happens when it comes to clinical documentation. And I mean, from the standpoint of recognizing my voice from the patient's voice, from what is medical, what is just chit chat, which a lot of, I'm an internist. So a lot of my visits were a lot of little chit chat going on, had nothing to do with the visit itself. So what do you think uh, this is going to happen the real world application of that? And what are some of the drawbacks? Yeah, so I, I worked on this, um, you know, years before it sort of reached daylight. Um, it, it's termed, I think, generally, or at least um, maybe from one company as ambient listening. And I, I saw it. It was interesting when I was first creating this and it was the adjacent possible that led to some of our 
ability to deliver on that promise. Um, and, and that adjacent possible came from car-based voice recognition systems, which we had at Nuance when I was working there. And we brought over some of the innovation that occurred in the car. And I was tremendously excited because in my brain, I saw this as a, a perfect opportunity to sit passively in a room absorb all this information and produce that grammatically correct, perfect note. And what we found very early on was, first of all, much of the medical decision-making doesn't take place in audio format. So there was no opportunity to derive that and put that into the note. And number two, as you rightly uh, point out, there was an awful lot of extraneous information that was important to the personal interaction that we all strive for and you know, deliver in medicine, but it's not part of the clinical note or it shouldn't be. Sometimes it is, but maybe part of the social history, it informs that, but not in its raw form. So our, our initial attempts at this were met with more resistance than I would have expected because I had failed to see some of those elements. What's happened subsequently, and we've seen it certainly with a couple of iterations, I think the most recent one I saw, um, is that it's gotten more agile. It's gotten more human-like in its ability to say, this is relevant and this is not relevant, and to infer um, information and create structure and relevance out of a conversation. And there's still going to be gaps and you still have to be a little bit more structured but I would point people back to the dictaphone days and say, who, when they started, pick up, speak up, hang up. They didn't do that. That wasn't our training, but we trained ourselves to do it because it gave utility. And I think it might change the interaction a little bit with patients. And that could be a downside. Do we miss things as a result of that? But the huge upside is, can you imagine every physician being told, no more note taking, we're just going to produce the notes offer it up to you, you get an opportunity to check it, and you don't have to take your work home with you, you can actually spend time with your family. Um, we're taking care of the documentation and the back end, and importantly, drive activity that includes orders, all of the things that you do as part of that consultation. That would be very compelling, but it's hard to do, and I think we're not quite there. We may be there in some very narrow circumstances, maybe by specialty or by individual disease process, but it's hard to broaden that out and say across the whole of medicine, we've got Star Trek-like voice recognition. Well, I would certainly certainly agree with that. Um, I've always, in my experience, have had issues with, and it's gotten better, uh, with it actually recognizing medical terms or medical things that I want in my note whether I speak it or the patient would speak it. And that, that part of it bothers me just a little bit going forward. How is it accurate is it gonna to be to that? The other issue I believe we have is we're trying to combat, I believe the, the physician burnout problem. Everybody is looking to fix, why are we so tired of practicing medicine that we actually leave the profession? or we, we seek other things to do. And this new NLP, voice recognition AI systems are, are touting that that is going to be the, the panacea that's going to, to fix that. One of the problems I see in the future is that even when all of that text is derived by whatever mechanism, it 
it's going to go because of the Cures Act to be shared some shape or fashion, as granular as it can be. And I think, believe one of the drawbacks is gonna be how much real data do you get out of those interactions? The other thing that concerns me, and I'd love your opinion on this, when you fit these things into workflow, part of EMRs are supposed to help you practice medicine, or at least that's what we have told people. Uh, they really become a collection device for data, which is billing data, encounter data, whatever data. But it, it really doesn't help you practice medicine. So I'd be really interested in your opinion on how these new technologies and others actually is going to give the physician something back that will help them take care of their patients. So uh, let's pick off the last question first. I think it's a little bit easier. It is in, in my, my perspective. The ability to bring documentation and importantly, the digitization of information to closer to real time offers the potential to provide insights that are driven by data that comes from science that can be integrated. One of the challenges with the paper note or even any kind of reporting activity was you weren't error preventing, you were error catching uh, or error reporting, I'm sorry. And we failed because there was a time difference or a time lapse. That was true with dictated notes as well. By the time the note came back, you know, if somebody picked up something and there was a problem. So driving real-time data and actually triggering that, obviously there's a concern with, you know, the over-triggering. We've seen an awful lot of alert fatigue and finding the right balance, but we've seen how uh, sensitized our universe has been to medical errors to the point of punitive, um, you know, criminal actions against a nurse who fair made a mistake, but actually followed the right procedures. So we really have to get better at this and we have to get better at it without burning out and without, you know, over triggering. That starts with source data that's real time. So for me, I think that's the, the positive or the potential positive. We haven't seen too much of it, but it, it has the scope. As far as the burnout goes, and what I heard you say is dilution of, of information, I think, as part of that. So it's more a conversation, we don't drive it. One of the things that I think we've failed to do is to create a literacy. And, you know, I realize this, I, I, don't, I don't know whether you were told this when you went into medicine, but, you know, I certainly struggled. I struggled less than some because I did Latin as a, a school subject, and that set me up quite well when you start to discover that many of the words that we use in medicine, you know, are derived from Latin and Greek and actually have meaning, but it was the equivalent to learning a new language. And it was an efficiency because I could communicate with you as a physician very quickly, the details of the patient diagnosis, but they wouldn't understand it. I don't think it was deliberately, you know, to obfuscate the information for the patient. But we have this health literacy problem because we use terminology. I've seen pushback from patients, certainly, you know, we need it explained. And I think technology is good at making those connections. So you might see, I, I see this in a world of a document for the physician, a document maybe even for the nurse, not that they don't understand, but they have a different lens. And then a document for the patient that presents it in a way that they comprehend it. And it, it 
bends right to one of my favorite uh, uh, comments around this is it's never a data problem. It's always a filter problem. And I think we need the right filters. If we have the correct source data, we can present it in any form that matches the individual's desired and uh, views. I, I absolutely agree with that. And when you look at what is going to be coming down the pike and shared with all the new interoperability uh, standards that are coming out and requirements that are coming out and having to be responsible for that data as it comes in, at least trying to figure out what is in there, um, that filtering part of that is going to become more and more uh, to the forefront, more needed because the volume of things you're going to have to, to deal with. So speaking of interoperability, and as our company and others have said, the data tsunami that is going to be transmitted back and forth, um, what's your take on what needs to be done to try to, to stem the tide or try to help physicians sort through all of that coming through, because as you know, there's going to be just absolute reams of it. And instead of on paper, it's going to be electronic. Yeah, we've seen that in, um, you know, very large format. You know, the best visual I've seen of that is, you know, CT slices. And the, we, we moved from, I don't know if we had two, two slice or I, I remember certainly four and 16. Now we're at 64. I don't even know how many slices. And, you know, you look at that technically and go, wow, that's more resolution. But of course, that's more information for the radiologist to, to filter through. And if you look at that as pure data in, you know, total um, volume terms, gigabytes, megabytes, whatever it is, and you divide that up by the available time, even if it's, you know, the maximum amount of time of them looking at images, you realize that they're spending less and less time looking at images. But is that actually true? And I, my sense of this in terms of that expansion of data, and it, it returns back to this, you know, filter, we have to filter the data in a way that presents it in a form that allows for the consumption so that you don't overwhelm the individual. We don't overwhelm the radiologist. We present it in a way that allows them to see it, albeit it's in higher resolution, more amounts, but they're able to see it. They volumize it. They visualize it. They put it into three dimensions. They give them the capacity to absorb that knowledge and they're able to apply much more medical decision-making because the presentation is so superior. I don't know about you, but when I was looking at uh, our uh, uh, sonograms for our, uh, the children that uh, we had, I, I was I, I felt on the edge of my capacity to determine even sex at that point. Now you can look at faces, you can predict what they're going to look like for crying out, and that's presentation of data, but it's more data. So I think tied up in there is the way in which we drive better visualization and underpinning this is automation but the automation importantly and i i think it lends back to the uh, speech uh, commentary that we had automation is good but finding an error is difficult and if you present that information back to the individual to review for errors that's the worst possible scenario because we can't see the errors we created it it's perfect. Of course, it's perfect. And I'm not saying that we, you know, we think we're perfect, but it's very hard to see. So we have to get better at identifying where there are problems if you introduce this automation as we become increasingly reliant on it. And I think the FDA has noticed that with digital enablement and so forth. So they're starting to say, you can't just trust the technology. It can only inform or advise. I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. It's Interesting to see also that 
the payment of medicine is changing to a more value-based care, which I think is going to be putting more pressure on physicians to find that data, those key elements within all of that data to really move the bar to make patients better or follow their disease or monitor their disease. So as that all shifts, what do you see as some of the technologies coming forward to kind of help with that, uh, especially at the point of care or other, in other ways? Yeah, so I, I, I think the opportunities that we have with data are really undiscovered countries. And, you know, there's almost some, uh, you know, I, well, it's not almost, there is, there's guesswork in this. And the reason for that is that I think we we don't have a good handle on the potential information that's embedded in that and how we derive it. Give you a good example of that. We can see in the visualization of data on diabetics that there are at least three types of diabetics, certainly based on some spectrums of presentation of information that we have. But we don't understand what that third group is. We've managed to define type one and type two but there are other. And I think we're going to get down to what, what I would consider an N of one. But what that demands is data liquidity and the share, open sharing of this information, obviously within boundaries. I mean, I, I'm a 100% supportive of privacy and so forth. This has to be done with consent. It can't be done as a subterfuge. Data has value. There are mechanisms of working that out. But I think that liquidity needs to permeate throughout and people have to stop using it as an economic barrier, as a barrier, because we need all to be pulling in the same direction. We have huge potential, but as we fight each other, we just create more opportunities for failures in the system as opposed to lifting the whole um, uh, set of boats with a rising tide of better data, higher quality data that everybody's invested in, including the patient. Well, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. And, and without that, I think we are not going to succeed in moving the quality bar, reducing the cost bar, or basically making healthcare a better place um, for the patients and the physicians. If I may, Jay, one additional point that you, you know, highlight as you, you respond, think about this. It's a little bit radical, but getting the, the patient deeply involved in the quality of that data, who else has a bigger vested interest in the accuracy of this information? It's got to be the patient, number one, and then they're associated. And it's not that we're not, but they have a bigger vested interest. Imagine engaging them. Absolutely. So, as we kind of start to wrap up here, are there any other big ideas or trends you see coming down the pike uh, that we should start to keep our eye on or pay attention to? Well, I, so playing on the data piece of this, I think the move to the home, we saw this with, you know, clearly with the pandemic, everybody said, well, I quite like being at home. I'm, you know, less enamored with the idea of getting on a plane, into a car. Um, and, you know, let's be honest, I'm not sure I've met anybody that says I want to age and die in a home. Most people say I want to age in my own home and facilitating that in a way that's safe and, um, you know, widely available will be driven by the capabilities and the monitoring. And, and central to that will be the passive 
monitoring. So my mother was a perfect example of this. She had one of those, you know, alert bracelets for, you know, she fell because she'd had some experience. Well, of course, when she fell, she wasn't wearing it. I mean, that's just inevitable that that's the case. And, you know, finding ways that the, the technology can monitor. And I, I remember a while back looking at in-home security cameras and just applying a little bit of AI and saying, gosh, I know mum comes across at 8.30, between 8 and 8.30 every morning she gets up and she walks from her bedroom, but she didn't this morning. She may not have fallen, but equally she may. And this is where, you know, so there's lots of opportunity with home monitoring at both basic levels, just applying, you know, technology and, and you know, intelligence to what we have and then applying even more. I've seen some incredible innovations you know, around the stethoscope, which you know is pretty old now, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to see some new innovations. We've got you know mobile capabilities, personalized monitoring. It needs to come with the right support services. This is not just about shipping people out and delivering telehealth. So that, for me, I think is the big driver. Maybe I'm biased again. You know, this isn't entirely altruistic. I want to age in my own home, and I want to do that safely. I'm sure my Children are going to get involved and say, you know, you need, we, we want to be sure that you're okay. We can do that with technology. And I think there's tremendous scope for that in the future. I'm going to uh, close with a question I ask everyone that I interview. If there was one thing in healthcare or healthcare IT you would change, what would it be? I would tell you that I, I, it's the personalization of the service to the individual. I think we've grouped everybody up. That was appropriate in you know, the early days of medicine. Um, but I think technology needs to deliver personalized service. And by that, I mean, not just in terms of the medicine, but in the way that we interact. I have different needs. Some companies outside of healthcare are very good at this. They know that Nick hates to be communicated by uh, telephone. He's a text message guy. A lot of people are. Some people prefer, you know, so understanding the individual and taking everything that we do in healthcare so that we make it a, what I prefer to call the frictionless experience so that you have an easy interaction and one that you go, wow, I love healthcare because we sure aren't saying that today. And that's what we all need to be saying. And I know that's what we all want. Nick, I'd like to uh, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, Nick also is the host of The Incrementalist. Um, I highly recommend uh, listening to that. If someone wants to get a hold of you, Nick, how would they do that? Um, well, I, I mostly I'm often heard to say that if the internet's down, um, you can't get hold of me. Most of my information is out there publicly available. All the uh, scammers have found it and duplicated it and <laughs> created versions of me. To, to much to my chagrin, many of my friends online know I've sort of struggled with this a little bit, but I, I'm, uh, I'm available at drnick at ecgmc.com. Uh, I'm available through LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, and um, you know most of those usual channels. If you can't find me, the internet is down. Dick, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's been a real pleasure. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.
www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.